0: Welcome to ArcNext Sessions episode 99. I'm Paul and I'm here with my co-host Donna and Ken. This week we're joined by Jenny Sabin, architect, artist, educator and winner of 2017's MoMA PS1 Young Architects Program. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jenny.
1: Oh, it's a it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, you seem to wear many hats. One thing that the three of us before this conversation wanted to talk to you about is maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, information about the different hats you wear. I know that you run Sabin Design Lab, based out of Ithaca Experimental Design Studio, mm-hmm. and then also Jenny Sabin Studio at Cornell. Maybe you can give us a little description of what those are and how they're distinct from each other.
1: Sure. So I wear three integrated hats, three very demanding and complimentary hats. Uh, One is as an educator. I am a teacher. I've been teaching in architecture since 2005. I taught design studios and seminars at Penn uh, for six years before accepting my position at Cornell and have been at Cornell now for just about six years. I teach design studios in our core professional degree programs, and I also teach Upper level seminars that broadly look at the topics of digital fabrication and emerging technologies, but more specifically, looking at linkages between the sciences and new materials and issues of making and constructing in the context of of new technologies. And my second hat is as principal investigator of of Saban Design Lab, which is housed here within uh, the College of Architecture, Art, and Planning. I'm primarily funded by the National Science Foundation and have been fortunate to receive two multi-million dollar grants since 2010 in collaboration with scientists uh, coming from material science, uh, cell and molecular biology, uh, mechanical engineering, physics, and beyond. And we primarily look at innovating adaptive materials across multiple length scales, as well as advanced geometries. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think what I am really driven by is uh, fundamentally issues of making and how all of these new technologies meet the material world and the built environment. And so we work across multiple length scales from the nano to the macro. And I have. Graduate and undergraduate architecture students, as well as students from material science and computer science working actively in my lab, as well as uh, more senior personnel and research associates. And most recently, I have launched a new program, which has taken a number of years to put into effect. I'm really excited about it. And it's a new two-year Master of Science in architectural science with a focus on what I'm calling matter Design computation, and for me, this represents over a decade of work across disciplinary boundaries. So it's it's pretty exciting. I, I started this work when I was at Penn with a longtime collaborator, Dr. Peter Lloyd Jones, uh, who ran a lab there. He's a cell and molecular biologist, and we started Lab Studio in two thousand six, and that uh, has since now been formalized in my lab here at Cornell. So it's been a long a long route. And then my third hat is as principal of Jenny Saban Studio, and that is my, um, my office, my practice. On paper, the lab and the studio are funded uh, differently, and they're housed within different uh, structures, but in reality, they're, they very much influence each other. So my practice allows me to take on client projects, and commissions and competitions like MoMA PS1 that move the fundamental research and questions that we're exploring in the lab into applied scenarios, and are really starting to meaningfully deal with with scale and human engagement and program. And of course, budgets and all of the practicalities of what it takes to bring something into the built world. So that's it keeps me busy. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I I get to work with a lot of amazing people, both in the context of my my collaborators, but also uh, clients like Nike and then, of course, my students. So that's a summary of the, the three three different hats that I wear. Jenny,
2: I know we want to talk more about the PS1 in particular event, but I think we'll get to that. That's sort of the newest topic. I wanted to delve a little more into your background. Like many architects right now, you have a degree in something different from your undergraduate degree, and then you went on to get a a master's degree. Your undergrad degree focused on ceramics or was in ceramics, correct?
1: Yeah, I have a BFA in ceramics and, and actually also a BA in interdisciplinary visual art from the University of Washington.
2: So I feel in a way looking at your body of work and sort of I've been listening as we have done some preparation for this podcast into some of the talks you've given over the years. And it seems like there's a almost a returning back to your roots happening in your work because you are starting or you have been exploring some more of ceramics, you know, and not just in terms of material, but I think anyone starting in ceramics and correct me if this isn't your experience, but my husband has a degree in ceramics. <laughs> there's a real emphasis on craft, craft material and this very earthy notion of using the clay, you know, the materials from the earth using fire, these very elemental concepts. And then you sort of zoomed all the way then at Penn into computational design. And it feels to me like you're sort of coming back around. Do you feel like that's the case? Or is it just something that has always been consistent in your work to sort of explore both the very earthy, poetic side as well as the the more data-driven side?
1: I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a return. I mean, the interesting thing is I thought I had left... Ceramics far behind. And I had an active art practice for a number of years after I graduated. I took some time between my undergraduate work and my graduate work. And pursuing a graduate degree in architecture was a very conscious decision, something that I thought through quite a lot. And in 2009, when we purchased our first 3D printer, and this was when I was still at Penn and within Lab Studio, it was a large powder based printer. It had the largest build bed available at the time. And I was really interested in using the printer not as a representational device, but as a way of rapid manufacturing parts and looking at uh, part to whole relationships and specifically exploring the particular behaviors and processes uh, found within the data produced in Peter's lab in biology through the lens of a 3D printer where all parts can be non-standard and um, you can have a, a strategy for producing a coherent whole. And so it was during... The summer of two thousand nine, when we were working on some prototypes, I just thought, you know, wait a minute, this is powder material. Why couldn't we work with another powder material? And it was that moment I realized that I had this literally a body of knowledge rooted in in clay. You know, something that was very much a part of my my body, just an understanding and a deep knowledge of a particular material and. So I I wouldn't say it was necessarily a return. It was just a new way of looking at that knowledge in the context of 3D printing specifically, but more so intersections between science and emerging technologies. And so we produced our own recipes of high fire clay stoneware bodies on an economical end. You know, it was really exciting. We went from buckets of proprietary media that was, you know, like $600 a bucket to $2 and I was connected with a mechanical engineer who had published a very small little article in Ceramics Monthly, and he had been tinkering with some recipes with powder-based printers. And so I visited him in his lab, actually at the University of Washington. And during that same visit, I met Ronald Rael, who, as you may know, an architect um, who teaches at Berkeley, has been doing some really interesting and innovative work with 3D printed ceramics. So. I soon then realized that there was a small group of people in architecture that were looking at some similar topics. So there's that part of it. So it was a revisiting of knowledge, and that's now been formalized in courses I teach on digital ceramics to projects. But then I think in a larger sense, what I find just mind-blowing is in the context of digital technology, you know, it's not our ability to produce complexity or novel forms and shapes. You know, all of that is really fascinating. And I think we've had like 15 to 20 years of kind of just intense formal investigation within the digital. But what I find to be the most provocative in many ways, I think, is a paradigm shift. And I'm certainly not alone in these ideas and thoughts. Uh, Mario Carpo, you know, famous historian and theorist, writes on this. But it has to do with the fact that the architect is being repositioned as a maker again. and Carpo claims that this hasn't happened, you know, since the medieval period. Thinking about, you know, Brunelleschi on site working with artisans where the design process is much more fluid in how one integrates materiality, uh, methods for making and constructing. And currently, we are in a position where we can communicate directly with machines, so modes of representation are are transforming. Uh, we can write our own scripts and algorithms such that that design loop becomes enmeshed with feedback and i'm really obsessed by that and so there are alternate disciplines textiles ceramics etc that historically have been craft based but they also have broken that gap down between how you design and make in real time and so i think that for me has been you know a really productive ground to explore and it's also fundamentally one of the biggest reasons why i'm interested in probing biology specifically and the sciences at large for design models, because for me, it's never been about simply scaling up, you know, what might be a beautiful form found at a micron scale in biology into an architectural form. But it's always been about a deep inquiry, a rigorous inquiry into processes and behavior where issues of materiality and geometry, context, programmatic events, it's all inextricably linked. It's you know as an integrated scenario and i think that's a really powerful way to think in in design so that's for me ceramics has been a ground for exploring those issues and and certainly i'm interested in the medium and the inherent beauty and the slowness that it provides it's not it's not a very forgiving Medium,
0: <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you started in ceramics, but your work is so much based in uh, scientific research and applications. Have you always relied on expert collaborators to engage that science in your work, or have you personally become directly involved in science or have you studied science to develop a greater understanding and 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 use your own knowledge to apply to your projects?
1: I actually in college, I started my first couple of years in biochemistry. So I, I've always been interested in science, biology, and, and mathematics. I've, I've always been pretty good at math. I love math. So it's always been an interest, but I quickly realized that that wasn't early on. That wasn't where I wanted to focus my studies. You know, before Peter and I formalized, my longtime collaborator, Peter Lloyd-Jones, before we formalized Lab Studio at Penn, we importantly took about a year just to figure out how to communicate. And so I would attend his weekly lab meetings and he would attend my studio reviews. I also met another longtime collaborator, uh, Dr. Xu Yang during that time, a material scientist. And it was a really open engagement and a shared commitment to learning how to collaborate effectively. And I think, you know, if, if I look back over the years, I think that investment of time was incredibly important because we quickly realized that although we we had some similar terms, we had very different definitions for those terms, we had radically different structures in place for how we teach, how we do research, how we garner funds, how we publish. I mean, everything was different. And so it's hard to collaborate, you know, across disciplinary boundaries because of that. And and never were we interested in, you know, turning architects into pseudoscientists or scientists into pseudo-designers and architects, but to really co-generate a collaborative space. And we thought early on that, at the very least, we would, we would produce new questions and hopefully new applications on both sides of the fence, so to speak. And... I mean, I had to be very rigorous in letting certain things just wash over. I mean, it was a lot of content to take in, but I really dug in and and learned, you know, the particular systems that we were we were looking at from the perspective of a designer, so that I could collaborate effectively. And I think that was that was quite important. And I also have been fortunate that in my longtime collaborators and some relatively new ones here at Cornell, they you know, their research is, is extremely particular and focused in terms of what they look at. And so that also helps me filter because, you know, I mean, it's a vast world and you can get quickly lost in the amount of of content that there is to work through.
0: So what do you think are some of the most challenging aspects of learning how to collaborate with a partner? You know, maybe something that, that young architects listening to this can, you know, be mindful of as they start a new collaboration.
1: I think patience is is really important I think to collaborate and to produce effective results whether it's a you know a published paper with co-authors or it's an actual prototype you know it takes time and it takes time to get funding to do the work and you know I it's I've had to learn a lot on my own and I owe so much to my scientific collaborators for showing me the ropes in terms of what it takes to go after a a grant from the National Science Foundation. You know, it's a two-year process. So I think patience is really important. I also think, you know, there are some really big differences in the way that science is done and, and the way that we work as designers. We project, we make things, we put things into the world, we apply things, we create problems. Whereas a lot of my collaborators do fundamental research. You know, they're The science they do is not invested in application. So that's very different. And that's been a hurdle for me to get over, you know, how does one operate as an architect in a collaborative team where scaling up is not necessarily that important to everybody that's on the team. And so, yeah, I think understanding how we do things differently and and being respectful of that. And I think for me, being able to operate as a designer in science, has been amazing, you know, and to be effective in someone's research that's engaged with cancer. I mean, that, that's a, that to me just is, is mind-blowing and incredibly important. So I I think, yeah, I think patients and, and also my collaborators are, are also friends. Um, I think developing those relationships is, is really important and can be really helpful in terms of, of moving forward. So Jenny, this is
3: uh, Ken Kunze. You know, when I was looking at the video and I was reading a little bit of the abstract from your website about Lumen, mm-hmm. one of the things I really liked, first, I liked the idea of the the, the title of the piece called Lumen. I, I liked the, the the double play. It's pretty fantastic. But I also like the idea that the one sentence I picked up right away was, Lumen is a feminine form. Mm-hmm. And I thought the, the video showing that knitting is a very feminine act, That I thought, could you talk a little bit about like the process of why you decided to use knitting in this piece and how does that connect with um, the overall narrative and you as a designer?
1: Sure. So I'll I'll answer the first part. Well, I'll answer the the knitting part in two ways. The, first of all, the material system that is employed in Lumen is something that I've been developing now for almost six years. And it's a material system that I essentially came up with uh, designed invented as part of a, a commission that came to me through Nike in 2012 that was part of their FlyNet, uh collective and I it was a pavilion project uh, in New York City and I proposed to them to produce a pavilion that would be uh, knitted that would also be steered by human biodata and so it was during that that first project that I struck up a working collaboration with Shima Siki and their at the forefront of what they call whole garment knitting. And what that is, is seamless 3D knitting, and which was perfect for the the project that I was working on for Nike. And I was interested in working with high-tech responsive fibers. And so I sourced early on three responsive fibers, the photoluminescent, which are uh, fibers that absorb UV or sunlight and slowly emit light photonically and the solar active uh, change color immediately in the presence of the sun. And then there were, were also reflective fibers integrated. And so I worked with Shima to innovate how that would operate at an architectural scale, which they had never done uh, before. They they work at the scale of the human body in haute you know, couture and fashion. And since then, I've done a couple projects for Nike. Most recently, I did a pavilion project for Cooper Hewitt as part of their beauty exhibition, uh, which was their fifth design triennial. And together with Arup, uh, my design engineers on the project, we were really able to refine the stresses and the flow of forces through the assembly. And with Lumen, I felt confident enough in terms of where I'm at with the knitted material system to, to take it outdoors. And in the past, I've worked with lighting designers to simulate day-to-night sequences to uh, articulate and transform the responsive fibers over, say, an hour. Whereas with Lumen, uh, we'll be outside and working with the actual elements, which I'm, I'm super excited about. So the first part of my answer is it's a material system that I've been developing and the knitting. I mean, one could say that knitting is the first example of 3D printing, you know, where you're additively layering link by link, row by row material. And, you know, textiles has a rich and vast history uh, that links computation with material. If you look at the history of the mechanization of the Jacquard loom and the invention of the punch card, which controls the flow of warp and weft and effectively information, that then led to you know the first mainframe IBM computers. So there's a rich history that in that case starts with material that ends up impacting digital space through the binary of zero and one of on and off of over and under of warp and weft. And there are similar scenarios with knitting, so I I find that history between computation and textiles uh, really inspiring. And then within that, on a meta level, and this gets to the other part of your question within the video and my description of it as a feminine form on a meta level with the advent of, of digital fabrication and fabricating and across alternate industries such as textiles, you know, we're we're seeing a shift through the non-standard, away from, and again, this is not male-female, but masculine-feminine, a shift away from the more masculine architectonic elements that we're used to, column, beam, arch, and towards skins and interiorities and fibrous networks, and in the case of lumen, social fabrics that are much more feminine. So that element of, you know, the gender of computation and its material manifestation is is really exciting to me and, and what that might be as a social space, as a social fabric, how we might interact with those spaces differently. And so those were ingredients and ideas that were important to me in the context of approaching the brief uh, for this year's MOMA, PS1 Yap. You know, I was really interested in issues of materiality, of transformation of a co-produced materiality between the architecture and the installation and people and their engagement with it. And so lumen will be very different throughout the day and night in terms of how one experiences it. And that's both from the the literal technicalities of, of how the material is assembled and knitted and the kind of complexity that it produces from the stitch to the conical stalactite forms to the overall canopy down to how it's distributed and spatialized as an architecture that is is more informal and so that's where those those topics came in in terms of the feminine and and the knitting
3: as i've been looking at the plan and, and looking at some of the um the diagrams and it's a very substantial project and one thing I, i'm never quite sure if we talked to andres Zaka before about his project for ps1 and the one thing I'm never quite sure I understand, or if anyone in the audience understands is, is I mean, can you talk a little bit about the program, the effort to produce the work, the time frame in which you have to complete the work and install the work, and then what your measure of success is? Because I think these things happen and there's a lot of criticism, and I'm sure you don't pay any attention to any of the criticism, but I, I tend to see the criticism and I'm like, does anyone really have a, a real complete understanding of what the effort here is? What's really in the effort at doing this? This particular installation. There's a program. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's pretty much the same thing every year, correct? There's a couple of parameters, and you design something around those particular parameters.
1: Yeah, there have been core parameters that have been a part of the brief, to my knowledge, for you know for its entire run. One includes addressing issues of sustainability. In however. Means you may. Um, the other has to do with integrating uh, some element of water. As we all know, it, it gets quite hot in July and August in in New York, especially you know outside in the courtyard at PS1. And this year, Sean Anderson, who's with MoMA in architecture, who's just been amazing, he added into the brief an interest in materials and materiality. There was also an interest in the proposals. Dealing directly with Warm Up, uh, which is the weekly event that takes place on Saturdays with invited DJs, and I think they were also very interested in how the proposals may operate in an integrated fashion with the various you know programs from Warm Up and beyond. So it's you know it's a it's a really exciting brief. It's it's open, but then there are some sp- specific constraints to engage with. Uh, there's you know, a very specific budget in terms of putting the budget together and not exceeding that budget. But, you know, it's a, the time frame is super intense. It's really fast. I, in terms of my team, broke up the proposal stage into three phases, uh, which I think for us was really productive. The first phase was focused on, on research, research into previous projects, both the winners and um, those that didn't win getting to know those projects, and then also, you know, working out ideas related to my own work and where we're at with things. And then phase two uh, happened over the holidays. <laughs> my team got a little smaller, and then we, we really pushed the schematic design and I- iteration. And then phase three was, you know, just really hitting the ground running. And that was basically from January 1 until the presentations at the end of the month, working on the final proposals. So you know, it's a it's an intense process, a really rewarding process. And then the window, once I heard that, that I had won, which, you know, was incredibly exciting, all of the proposals this year were, you know, really unique and engaging and exciting and, and so I was blown away. I was really blown away. It's a you know real honor, but the window of time to finalize design and all the construction documents and I work with my engineer at Arup, uh, Clayton Binkley, who's just been amazing to installation and production is, is a short window. So it is intense. <laughs> Good, intense.
0: Where are you at right now in the process?
1: The knitting has started. I'm meeting with my finisher who will be doing all of the sewing of the individual knitted elements uh, into the pre-stressed net that forms the two canopies. I' meeting with them actually next week, they will start the finishing process. So the knitting and the finishing and sewing process overlaps and I've estimated in total that's probably going to take about two months. The fabrication of the three towers, uh, two of which are 35 feet tall, the one in the smaller courtyard is uh, 24 feet tall. All the steel is going to be fabricated in April by a great shop called Jacobson Cruthers, And so they're doing all the steel fabrication. And then we're, the towers are tensegrity towers. So the, the structure also includes structural ropes, which are being made from scratch. So that's all in the works. The actual fabrication will happen during the month of April. And then we start the installation process early May and we'll strike, the three towers first and get those installed and then the two large canopies will be installed and structurally they they're independent but they work together so the the three towers will obviously stand on their own but then we we tension the the canopies to the existing matrix of courtyard walls and so we built in you know a whole schedule for for tensioning and and then the the seating component which is also an important part of the brief that I didn't mention to provide seeding, they're composed of recycled spools. Uh, so, making reference to the textile component of the project, all of the seeding is is being produced in my lab here at Cornell. So, we're deconstructing spools, CNC uh, machining the the tops and the bottoms of the spools to make them into basically like cogs, and then those are robotically woven to tension them with a photoluminescent microcord, and then capped, and those form. Uh, stools that will sort of pepper the, the courtyard areas. And we're also stenciling, each one will have a unique letter, and those letters will be painted with a hydrochromic ink. So you'll only see the ink when the misting stations reveal those letters. So it's a kind of play on hidden messages and maybe seating patterns that people might start to create uh, with these. All the seating is, is being done in-house, and we've started that as well. So it's a uh, kind of integrating both design development and fabrication all at once.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So maybe I don't so much have a question here as I just want to sort of bring up a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm going back to one of your projects from a while ago, from 2010, called Branching Morphogenesis. And you said in an article, I an interview I read with you that the, the this is a piece that's made up out of seventy five thousand interlocking cable ties, zip ties. You said each tie represents a force exerted by lung endothelial cells on the protein matrix that surrounds them as they form capillaries. So that's like super sciency, <laughs> right? But one of the things you said about that piece in the interview was that you have this interest in how nature is communicated to people. So you're taking this very sciencey, very you know abstract, in that it's so small scale, sort of. Science Scientific biological occurrence and turning it into something that is beautiful that people want to look at, right? And I think about that in terms of how architects. Will Bruder said that architects are pragmatists and poets. That we have to be able to make poetry pragmatic and vice versa. And I wanted to get a little more of your take on how you, as an architect, can use the kinds of very science-based data and occurrences in the world and turn them into something that is beautiful and how that as an architect, is our role in communicating to people.
1: Yeah, sure. So Branching Morphogenesis, which actually we produced, it was a project that came out of Lab Studio in in 2008. And it was our first large project that came through an exhibition invitation from Seagraph. And they have a design and computation gallery now uh, where they actually, a lot of architects have been showcasing work. And, you know, for me, that project you know, it was important on many levels. And one thing that I think was key in the material system is the fact that it was made of cable zip ties. And because it was a a ready-made, everybody knows what a cable zip tie is. And so there was, you know, responses that was just like, you know, the sheer complexity of, you know, why in the world would someone make something out of 75,000 cable zip ties? But there was an immediacy to the project that allowed for people to engage with it in a familiar way, but then also be transported. And its sheer complexity and because it was working with data, albeit as an analog and through an analogic process that was you know coming from a very rigorous scientific inquiry and also through a number of very rigorous simulations of those behaviors and processes of basically networking behavior of, of human lung cells. And so the, the project played an, a really important pedagogical role in the way that it invited people in. And I didn't care if people understood what the starting point was or necessarily the particular biological system that we were looking at, but it probed new questions across these disciplines. And I think beauty plays an important part in that and in one's engagement and allowing people to enter and project their own experiences into something that's spatial and otherwise comes from a different origin. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the production of that project with Andrew Lucia, who was a part of Lab Studio early on, you know, every day we're <laughs> zip-tying away with students and that would come and go. And But one of the most important moments for me was when the director of the Institute for Medicine and Engineering, Peter Davies, came over at one point to see how progress was. And and he was really blown away by the fact that each one of the zip ties represented a data point. So here he was coming in, looking at it through the lens of a scientist. And again, it didn't matter that Zip tie was truth or not, you know that they, they don't know what the, the truth is. It was the fact that it allowed for a different way of of entering and and maybe even the generation of new hypotheses. You know that through the production of a spatial construct, a beautiful immersive construct, it allowed for a new way of looking and seeing. And I think in all my work, whether it's the collaborative research or the applied projects running through my studio, there's an element of the design process that is very enmeshed in advanced digital computation and writing scripts and algorithms, exploring behaviors and processes, sometimes coming from biology, sometimes exploring mathematics. You know, there are different starting points. But then there's always a phase that moves into the analog and it's slow and it's it's very much about the human. and And I think at least at the prototype stage, that, that's super important to the work. And I think that plays into its, you know, the way that it operates um, in terms of, of beauty and complexity and the more, as you describe, poetic aspects of it. So I'm 50, so I've been around for a while in
2: architecture. Um, it seems to me that the, the sort of use of parametrics and algorithms and, and this computational approach that, that we take to so much work these days is incredibly valuable in the ways that you talk about it being not something that you bring a form to, but that a form flows out of the information and the ways of making that put it together. Mm -hmm. And that that is where, as I see society sort of pushing away scientists, basically, I mean, I feel like in the United States, we're in a sort of anti-science moment right now, that making things approachable and beautiful and what was the word you used for branching morphologies that you would enter into it right that it's mm-hmm. immersive in a way that maybe that is how we begin to actually communicate some of that very important data to people without being seen as suspicious
1: right yeah no absolutely i think i think new models for communication are really important operating at all scales and you know for me the immediate bridge actually was through in terms of starting to work with with Peter and Chu and others, was through visualization and simulation. And so on the one hand, it was, was bringing a set of skills uh, to model data, to spatialize data through different means, to reveal its hidden structures and aspects of the data that couldn't otherwise be seen. So there was that, but then importantly, a way of thinking and a way of thinking and design that's generative, that's systemic, that's about relationships. And to be able to synthesize and operate as an architect and bringing those processes and behaviors into different material constructs, I think has been been really rewarding and powerful for everybody involved. And over the years, that's been formalized into three distinct phases that I think organize the work, whether it's the core research or or applied projects, and and usually it always starts with the development of tools to model behavior. I like to think of of software and scripts as a new type of material, you know, and and so some of those custom algorithms are then brought into the realm of of prototyping and productively contaminating the process with issues of making and, and fabrication, and also at the same time, meaningfully and rigorously dealing with the problem of scale. And so as you described, it's it's through those moments and those, those inflections and kind of contaminations, productive contaminations, that the forms begin to emerge and begin to take on other architectural conditions. And then the third phase entails bringing some of those successful prototypes into the realm of of building and issues of building ecology and other architectural conditions, whether it's a program or site context, human engagement. And so for me, it's a slow process. It's purposefully slow. And I think Lumen is edging into that third category. And for the the past few years, has operated more more so at the kind of prototypical stage uh, through wonderful commissions and projects and exhibitions that I've been able to take on, and so I'm I'm pretty excited about that and and it's and where it's going next in terms of the the other layers that are aspects of the project that we have touched upon in terms of the feminine and more informal organizations? What does it mean to think about materials not as things and elements and buildings, but more so as, as deeply immersive, changing architectural, spatial elements that provoke participation and, and hopefully beauty and also play and levity while addressing other pressing issues that you brought up, which is communicating the importance of, of science and engagement across disciplines?
3: That's what's so beautiful about the branching piece is that when you look at it from uh, the one photograph on your site, it reminds, you know, when you see the larger photographs of the piece and then you see the close-up photograph and reminded, well, there is a cilia. There's a a filtering mechanism inside the lung that's supposed to... So when you see these uh, zip ties kind of performing like that, that function that's supposed to expel foreign objects in the lung, I kind of, I see that connection. And I was thinking when you and Donna were talking, I'm like, my mom, when we were growing up, she would collect the uh, pull tabs from beer cans and we'd make sculptures out of the beer cans mm-hmm. or yep. the beer can pull yep. tabs. And I'm looking at this and we were talking about it, I'm like, that's a, I mean, I just love how that, how that connects with that. But the one thing I was really interested in, and I'm, I've always been interested in this, when anyone uh, uses science to create art, I'm always fascinated by, do you deliberately or do you do you insert kind of bugs into the system to see what, what happens when a foreign object or a foreign uh, an invader uh, kind of um, like works its way? Because I think sometimes science is seen as very clean and very antiseptic, but, you know, there's always the possibility of an intruder. What do you do with that if, if that's something you you try to do? Or is it is it a byproduct of actually doing this, and uh, working with software? How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of discoveries in science also happen uh, through the unexpected things that n- maybe weren't necessarily planned, but, you know, have developed I- incrementally over time and then suddenly reveal something new. And I mean, I think in my design process, there's a purposeful injection of foreign contaminants or, or questions, uh, as you call them, invaders. But for me, that also brings into the realm of, of architecture and the other you know constraints that we have to consider. But sure, occasionally as an experiment we might look at purposefully integrating something that we're not quite sure what it'll produce. And I, I'm I never know what a project will be in terms of its final form at the beginning. You know, we think of architects as typically you 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 start out with a kind of party diagram and you design towards that diagram where I'm interested in working through a design process where that that diagram emerges over time and and can change. So yeah, sometimes we might, you know, one example that comes to mind with the knitted material assembly working with specific parameters pertaining to knitting. I've gotten really interested in holes and in knitting, you would think that if you had a high density of holes in the overall material that it would make it much more stretchy and impact its elasticity, but it actually makes it a, much more stiff um, because essentially you're arraying a lot of little tiny knots. And I mean, actually it works like a, you know, cellular skin. It's really fascinating to me as an analog. So that, that's been a little, you know, it's a specific example of, of inputting another variable that you're not quite sure what it's going to do. And it's actually been a really effective variable to start to tweak in terms of controlling the flow of, of tension through the, the overall
3: material structure. Jenny, I just had two more questions for you. What are you reading these days and what are you listening to?
1: Oh boy. I tend to go back and forth in my reading. I, I tend to be reading a number of things all at once.
2: Can I ask, since you're at Cornell, are you a fan of Matt Ruff? Have you read any Matt Ruff? Because I think everyone there... Has to. <laughs> Do you know who that is? I'm not reading Matt Ruff currently. He wrote a novel thirty years ago probably now called Fool on the Hill, which takes place in Ithaca. And it, you know, it's all about the college and the people and the craziness of the city. I really enjoyed it. It's it's pretty old by now. But his more current works I think are pretty fantastic too.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I can tell you so two things that I'm I'm reading right now. One actually I finally had a chance to sit down and begin reading it, and it actually features branching morphogenesis on the, the cover, but it's, it's titled The Once and Fu- Future Turing, Computing the, the World, and it's edited by Barry Cooper and Andrew Hodges. And then I've, I've been rereading Earth Moves, which is by Bernard Cash that was published a while ago, but it's a dense and I think, you know, important book. So I've been rereading that in anticipation of a couple of presentations that I'm putting together.
2: And what are you listening to?
1: I also shift back and forth with with that too. I was just listening to The Beast of Boys, actually.
0: <laughs> Which album?
1: The one that has what comes around on it, uh, Paul's Boutique.
0: Oh, Paul's Boutique is the best. It is the best. <laughs> it's the best one.
1: Yeah, it is the best. I grew up in Seattle and so experienced the birth of grunge, went to many of the first concerts of some of those famous bands, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, etc. So that was a pretty exciting time. So I tend to gravitate towards the 90s for for music
0: (laughs) well jenny it was so nice having you on the show personally i cannot wait to geek out at lumen when it's finished in, in new york this summer it sounds really fascinating and your description of it has made it even that much more interesting yeah so thank you so much
1: oh it's a pleasure it's been just great chatting with you guys uh thanks for the opportunity and i look forward to uh having you visit lumen
0: i look forward to that as well and thanks to everybody out there listening if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can reach us on twitter at our twitter account arc or with hashtag archonnect sessions you can also send us an email to connect at archonnect.com with comments or suggestions and if you enjoy the podcast please consider rating us on itunes talk to everybody in a couple weeks